It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Yeah. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen that no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour, the second, the minute. <laughs> the whatever of doom and bloom. <laughs> hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, an exuberant episode of epiphanies in an egregious world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find more than 900, wow, posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And, and I am Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the mostess, our mission to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. That's right. We're the dynamic duo, the perfect pair, and we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, <laughs> have you been injured in an accident? With an insidious iguana, well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only. Entertainment. (laughs) That's right. Entertainment. And do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Emergency medical personnel may not be at your beck and call, may not be at hand. Surprise, surprise. So use some common sense and know what to do for injuries and illness in disasters. That's just smart. Shows you got a few pearls in your oyster still. So make sure you get some supplies and an awesome medical kit. And you know what? What better place to get an awesome medical kit than from the awesome Nurse Amy's (laughs) entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Meant to handle issues you'll face if help is not on the way. And unlike other survival kits designed by a real doctor and advanced registered nurse practitioner. That's right. And where can they find all of your wonderful medical (laughs) kits, young lady? Well, I have a website. You can either type altonfirstaid.com or you can search for store, doom and bloom, 
Or you can type store.doomandbloom.net. That's right. <laughs> Lots of ways to find us. I love it. Hey, give us a chance, Vance. We learn as much from you as you do from us, so connect with us. It is so easy, and here's a lovely nurse, nurse Amy to tell you how. Is that my new name? Lurse. 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 <laughs> Lurse. As you don't Lurch. call me Lurch. Right. Lurch, Lurch Amy. <laughs> <laughs> you can contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. We have a couple of Facebook pages, Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. And also Joe Alton, MD. That's right. Facebook. Want to be a personal friend of the old geezer? (laughs) Well. Like I've said before, I never intended to have this many Facebook things. But, you know, I have to follow the rules at Facebook. So you can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. Don't forget our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. I actually just put up a new video last night. That's right on how to survive a building fire. Yes, that's right. Yeah, from we we actually recorded that a little while ago after the Oakland warehouse fire, but finally it took me a while. No, but it <laughs> to edit in in the winter it. you'll find a lot of people indoors, a lot of people. It's true involved in fires, so it's very useful to have it out right now. You're absolutely right. We also have a different podcast if right? people are interested in. The topics of the day in America and right. the world and current events, politics. Oh yes. no, not that! But it is politics. If you're not interested in politics, don't listen. <laughs> and then we call that a podcast, American Survival Radio. You're listening to Survival Medicine Hour right now. That's this is a medical podcast. Our current events podcast is American Survival Radio. You'll find it at americansurvivalradio.com, and we're also now broadcast. From KPJC, Relevant News Talk Radio, out of Salem, Oregon. The Voice of Lubbock, Texas, Radio KRFE, the Prepper Broadcasting Network, out of Montana, Montana, Idaho. It's way up there. (laughs) An awesome, awesome group of people. And, And we also appreciate... Other networks like Survival Central, the Emergency USA Emergency Broadcasting Network, Shake and Wake Radio, and a lot of others that replay our shows. Absolutely. Now, you yes. out there would do us a oh, tremendous them. favor. Yes, do us a <laughs> tremendous favor by following our Twitter, our Facebook, our YouTube, and all our other social media outlets. I promise you we will be sending you content that will save a life one day in times of trouble. So... Don't forget to stay up to date. Stay up to date with How's us. That? And don't forget to come see us when we travel the country. We do that every year. We're spreading I going, the good news. I heard we're going to Germany. We're going to Germantown, oh. Tennessee, near Memphis. We'll be I there. I was all excited to go to Germany. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We'll be there right at the end of February, February 27th, 28th, I believe. And then we travel right to Nolens, Louisiana on March 4th to 5th. The uh, the Memphis show is an RK Pepper show, and the Na- uh, NPS show is the one in New Orleans. So we'll be giving lectures, free mm-hmm. lectures. We'll be doing an awesome wound care suturing and stapling class. We'll, you'll get to see our entire line of medical kits. And guess what? What we most want you to do is just come by and say hi. Absolutely. We like Absolutely. to meet people. Um, I just want to let folks know if they are interested in any of the suture classes that I have recently updated the classes page. I have three of them, I think, up. And that's, I include Germantown is up. Uh, we added another one. 
Where was that one? I can't remember now. <laughs> but anyway. I have the Nolans one. Oh, I know. Chicago. Oh, right. We'll be in North Chicago. Okay, so the Germantown is February 26th and 7th. Sixth no, and sorry, 27th and 28th. That's what I said. Right. And so that's near Memphis. And the Chicago one is in March, and that is, I believe, the, like, the 18th and 19th. It's going to be a busy, busy time for oh, us. Oh, boy. Wow. Yes. All right, well. And then we go let's <laughs> to go New Orleans. To, oh, my gosh. That's oh, okay. no, we go to New Orleans in between again. Okay, so. It's a lot of scheduling. That is a lot of stuff. Hey, you know what? We want to talk a little bit about personal protection. You know that a medic or somebody that's going to be involved in taking care of people in times of trouble <laughs> needs to realize that their first priority is to protect themselves. And so it's important to have uh, various supplies like gloves, like masks. So let's talk a little bit mm-hmm. about protective masks. I mean, we've talked about gloves before. We want you to have nitrile gloves, not latex. Well, gloves are also great uh, in the winter because we have flu seasons. Right. So it's a good time to know about masks right now. Ab- absolutely. And uh, we have, uh, from a glove standpoint, to just go go through that real quick, gloves are nitrile now. Uh, in most cases, there's latex gloves still exist, but remember, there's an epidemic of latex allergies in this country. And so we, in your supplies, you should have some nitrile gloves. That's N-I-T-R-I-L-E. You know, we were just in the doctor's office the other day, and I saw on the wall three sizes of nitrile gloves. Three sizes. Small, wow. medium, and large. All right. Well, everybody is a little bit different. Most men will take large, <clears throat> I would guess. In terms of uh, gloves, it just depends on the size that you are. Everybody's a little different. Now, so infectious diseases, let's face it, they're part and parcel of the human experience. That's in good times. That's in bad times. And ever since the Middle Ages, we've known that infections have the capacity of passing from person to person. So we've got to make sure that we protect ourselves by having masks. Now, Masks have been used very commonly throughout the eons. I mean, during the Black Plague in Europe in the Middle Ages, uh, doctors would walk around with these crazy-looking masks. Looks like a bird. Look like a bird's beak. Yeah. Very and the reason funny why looking. it looks like that, by the way, is because it had a hollow area where they put a bunch of posies or other kinds of herbs, fragrant herbs right. and flowers that they thought were going to protect them from getting the plague, and so. The tradition of using masks uh, for a medical provider is actually pretty, you know, pretty uh, long-standing. Now, around the year 1900, masks began began to become used pretty routinely during surgeries, uh, and this helped prevent microbes from contaminating the operative field. This is something in before then that they didn't bother doing. As a matter of fact, I have some photographs of. Uh, the late 1800s, uh, some operating rooms in the late 1800s, and the doctors are smoking cigars while they're doing surgery. So that is, by the way, don't do that. And <laughs> the important thing... What great advice you provide. Right, right. It is amazing. But they realize it's important to realize that masks will protect not only the person being operated on, but it will protect the wearer from blood splatter and other infectious fluids and things like that. 
on the basic. What a lovely picture. I, I just put Blood in my mind of things being splattered the walls. <laughs> oh my gosh, honey. Oh, you guys, it's probably not a good idea to eat a snack while you're listening to our <laughs> to show. This show. Wait, not this one. I'm Do something sure. active, but don't sit there and eat. <laughs> you never know what we're going to say. <laughs> now, the basic surgical mask, that hasn't changed much in the last century. In reality, you've seen them probably worn in all sorts of places throughout throughout the last hundred years, mm-hmm. pretty much just about everywhere. And it's used a lot more often today than it was just 20 years ago. And you know where? In Asia, especially. You know, in Asia, it's actually considered impolite to not wear a face mask if you have a cold or flu and going out in public. It's a sort of a sign of social responsibility. I think also, especially in some of the bigger cities, they're just afraid of pollution. Oh, yeah. They have horrible, horrible levels of pollution. So some of that is them being sick. And it, like you said, it's a polite society and that's what they do. But the other side of it is they just don't want to breathe this choke-filled air. air, Like, Absolutely. I think that it's one of those things that if you don't have masks, then you really regret it when you're in the midst of a lot of smoke and a lot of smog like we have. We even have that. that We have that in the U.S., yeah. Yeah, but we saw that in L.A. Exactly, yeah. You come down through the clouds in the airplane, folks. If you ever land in L.A. on a a pretty bad day of uh, toxic disgustingness in the air, Right. Not that anyone wants to go to L.A., but let's just say you have to. Um, it's weird. It's almost as if there's a storm going on because you go through these clouds, and then once you get down below, there's a haze around the sun. Right. Remember? Yes. You don't you see the actual see... sun No, it's not as clear. A disc, it's weird. So to speak. It's very strange. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure it's maybe, not as bad as maybe we were there when it was particularly bad. Who knows? <laughs> I don't want to go back. Now, listen, face masks have the added advantage of reminding people to keep their hands away from their nose and their mouth. I mean, a lot of people absentmindedly touch their faces with nasty fingers, all sorts of contaminations on them. And and they do that repeatedly over the course of the day. and, And that's a major cause of the spread of infectious disease. All you have to do is take a look at one of your kids for about a half hour and count the number of times they touch their nose, their mouth, their eyes with their hands. Yuck a do. There is a lot that <laughs> a lot more than you think, believe me. So a good supply of masks, important to stockpile of medical storage if you're going to be medically responsible in case of a disaster. And without these items, you have to remember that infectious disease can spread throughout your entire family, even a survival group in times of trouble. Uh, Medical masks, these are evaluated based on their ability to serve as a barrier to very small particles. And when I say very small, I'm talking about fractions of microns. I mean, that is tiny, tiny, tiny. If if a width of, of a, if the width of a single hair was made, was a circle. If you cut a hair in cross section, you'd have a pretty much a circle. And you take a look at that, um, most hair, but by the way, uh, you take a look at that. Then a micron it would be a dot in the circle formed by making a cross section out of a single hair. So we're talking about very, very small areas. Yet they are particles. These are particles that can contain bacteria or viruses. So you need to have 
enough protection so that it amass so that it will block the ability of these bacteria and viruses from getting through and into your nose, your mouth, and uh, uh, into your respiratory tract. They actually test these at a flow rate, you know, the, in a certain type of flow rate that approximates, let's say, human breathing, human coughing, even human sneezing. And so you know that you're pretty much safe if you have a, a pretty solid mask. Uh, also, by the way, masks are tested for their ability to tightly fit the average human face. If your mask is not a tight fit, well, then you're not getting anywhere near the amount of protection that, that a good fit would give and, and certainly not protected against infectious disease. Now, the most commonly available face masks use ear loops or ties to fix them in place. And these are available very, very inexpensively. Uh, higher quality masks are now made of what we call melt-blown coated fabric, and that provides uh, better protection than, let's say, woven cotton or gauze, which was used earlier and certainly early in the uh, 20th century. Now, it should be mentioned that medical masks are not all created equal. They have a wide range of protection based on, of course, fit. Uh, a tight fit's important, as I mentioned before, and making a barrier to infectious droplets. And mass thickness is a factor as well. There are three-ply masks. These are the most common version. They're more breathable. But six-ply masks present more of a barrier. So there are different plies to the mask, just like you have different plies to, let's say, toilet paper. Now, the upgrade to a basic ear loop surgical mask is the N95 respirator mask. And the N95 medical masks are a class of disposable masks. They are still disposable. They're impermeable to at least 95% of particulates that are greater than 0.3 microns in size. Now, these are that's tiny, tiny, tiny guys. And these masks protect against many contaminants. They're not 100% effective. That's why they're called N95. They're protective against 95% of particulates. But there are N99 and N100 masks. These are protective against 99% and 99.7%. Now, the N in N95 stands for non-oil resistant. There are also oil resistant R95 and, and P, oil proof, mass, P95 mass, but these are usually used in uh, factories or, or for industrial, essentially, and, and maybe even agricultural use. So you're looking for N95 masks. Now, many of these masks uh, have a either a square or round, what they call exhalation valve in the middle, and it helps with breathability. But none of these masks however, cover the eyes unless they happen to have a built-in built -in face shield. And as such, you have to remember that most of these masks will not prevent uh, spatter from getting into your eyes, and they're also not protective against toxic gases such as chlorine. For this, you need a classic gas mask, and we've talked about that when we've talked about biological warfare in the past. As a matter of fact, uh, we got a couple of gas masks from <laughs> our kids as a, I guess they think, gag gift. We actually said, oh, wow, thanks a lot. I know, right. <laughs> but um, for the most part, uh, gas masks are, are there for specific issue, reasons, and those reasons are 
gas attacks. Right. You know, most of the time you can get by with N95 masks, things like that. So what kind of strategy should you have with regards to your medical storage of masks? You need both standard masks and a lot of them, and you need some N95 as part of your medical supplies. And so, you know, get a lot of each because these are things that if something really happens and we are not in a situation where factories are working and and distribution uh, exists, well, then the mass that you have when you start the era of trouble, mm-hmm. well, that's what you're going to have pretty much for the duration. So make sure you have a significant number of mass of each of the mass, because remember, these mass are not meant to be reused. They're supposed to be uh, discarded once you've used them right, once. Right, one time. That's right. Now, there are no absolute standards as re- regards to who wears what in the sick room. Uh, we recommend using the standard masks, ear loop masks, for those people who are who are ill, the actual patients, and that prevents contagious from their coughing and sneezing out. Now, N95 should be used by for caregivers, however. And so this is something that's very useful, and you should have some face shields. If you don't have an N95 mask that comes with a face shield already, then get a few face shields as well in case of highly contagious infections. So if you have somebody who's spitting up blood with Ebola virus, well, you need to have a face shield and probably much more uh, if you're going to stay safe. Now, remember, your highest priority is to protect yourself. And, of course, the healthy members of your group, as well as get the sick members healthier as healthy as quickly as possible. And so isolating them is a good idea. And you have to, of course, have a sick room that's going to allow you to keep the healthy people and the sick people apart, except for the person that's actually doing the caregiving. And that person should be the same person. Honestly, if you, you don't really want your entire community going in and out of a room where there may be a, a contagious virus floating around in the air. So you have to have plenty of masks and plenty of gloves. We've talked about those. You can consider gowns, aprons, uh, face shields. We've been talking about that. And, of course, antiseptics. Even if it's just bleach, uh, take a 1 to 10 bleach solution you can use that to clean any all any and all of your work surfaces, and you will decrease the chances of an infection passing to your entire people. And, of course, you have to remember that your entire survival could depend on it. You know, in a disaster, especially a long-term collapse, the family medic has to be hand, able to handle a lot of different emergencies. Some of these are... Clearly survival, a sprained ankle or a broken finger, and some of them are not, like a bullet to the brain. Let's hope that we never get into a get to the point where there are a lot of bullets to the brain going on. Uh, but you have to have a realistic attitude. I mean, this is a hard reality. Decision-making isn't going to be made any easier, but it could be made clearer. And you, your goal is to prevent the avoidable deaths. That's your goal. You're the sole medical asset possibly for your family or for even a group in an austere setting, and if that's the case, then what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to save the people that can be saved and hopefully help people that are even sicker. Now, one way to accomplish this is to pay strict attention to prevention. We talk about that. The medic's responsibility makes is making sure water is 
properly sterilized, foods prepared safely, activities of daily survival are performed with appropriate gear, protection, and clothing. And this will avoid a lot of headaches and maybe a lot of heartaches if you pay attention to these issues. And another way to keep your family healthy, of course, is to have medications and supplies to deal with issues that you would encounter as the medic. Uh, bandages, antibiotics, pain relievers, things like that, numerous items are important in this mission. But what happens when these items expire? And you know, I haven't talked to you about expiration dates, even though I wrote that article, that classic article from years ago that is quoted all over the place and now seems to be common knowledge that indeed expiration dates aren't what many people used to think that they were. And before I tell you, I just want to make sure that you know that my focus is medical preparedness for major disasters, long-term survival. That means the strategy of putting together stockpiles of supplies that might save a life in really bad times. In normal times, when you can call your doctor for a fresh prescription, seek modern care by qualified professionals, as we mentioned in our disclaimer at the beginning of the show. So, Let's talk a little bit about expiration dates. What is, for goodness sake, an expiration date? Let's examine what that really means. An expiration date is the last day that a pharmaceutical company will guarantee full potency of a drug. Now, these dates weren't mandatory at all. You wouldn't see them even on medicines until about the year 1979 in the United States, or optional at least. And printing them up on label brings up questions. If you have a label that says a certain date, do you throw these medicines away when they expire? You throw them away the next day. What happens if you take them after the date on the label? What if a disaster takes away the ability to manufacture their fresh supplies of this stuff? And these are questions that were asked by no less an entity than the U.S. Department of Defense. They had a billion dollars worth of drugs stored away in warehouses for military and civilian use. And indeed, when those drugs wound up uh, expiring, They, the Department of Defense had to get the forklifts out and, you know, had the challenge of destroying and replacing millions of doses of medicines used for emergencies, and they had to do this on a regular basis. You might imagine this gets pretty darn expensive. Now, the drug company's data didn't help because there was no requirement to test for effectiveness any longer than the expiration date. And so there was no information that the military had regarding these drugs that they had in their hand that had passed their expiration date in terms of whether they were still effective for the purpose that they were meant. And so this led the military to begin studies that could determine if it could extend the shelf life of this massive inventory that they have. And so they instituted this program called the Shelf Life Extension Program. And it was an evaluation done in conjunction with the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. And it tested about 122 drugs that had been expired for 1 to 15 years in the uh, Department of Defense's warehouses and found that 90% of them were fully potent and considered safe 2 to 12 years, something like that, or maybe 1 to 15 years after their expiration date and indeed did not show not only still fully potent but they did not cause you to grow an eye in the third eye in the middle of your forehead or a horn you know 
or antlers or things like that, these medications, you know, actually were still effective and they were still safe. Now, most of these medicines that were successful, these 90%, were mostly the ones in pill or capsule form. And so things that, medicines that they had in liquid form, things like nitroglycerin, insulin, epinephrine, antibiotics that were in liquid form, like that amoxicillin elixir that you give little kids, these indeed did lose their potency very, very quickly. So this is something that's important to know. If you have pills or capsules and they have passed their expiration date, it's very likely that they're going to be still potent and probably won't make you grow a horn in the middle of your forehead. Now, this wasn't a lone study, but a series of tests that spanned decades. I'm not talking about a one-time thing, and the next time they test it, they may find something different. This is a series of tests that was done over the course of time. Now, there were unrelated studies, also showed similar results. There was a report in the medical journal called um, Archives of Internal Medicine. It found some drugs in an old storage room in a pharmacy, I think in San Diego, and these drugs were 28 to 40 years expired. And they tested these and 12 out of 14 active ingredients were still found to be 100% or more potent. Now, when I say more, it's because the gelatin in capsules or, or other inert ingredients in a particular medicine might have degraded, but the active ingredient, believe it or not, in 12 out of 14 of them were still absolutely 100% potent. Now, despite uh, these findings are being made public, and indeed they were made public from time to time, and you could find the Shelf Life Extension Program first described all the way back in 2006 in the Journal of Pharmaceutical Science, I think the July issue. And most people, despite all this, still believe a drug shouldn't be taken after the expiration date. And you will find a number of civic programs, often sponsored by pharmaceutical companies, by the way, that actively encourage you to dispose your medicines as soon as they expire. You, know, you can take them to many municipalities, have a place that you can take these medicines so that they can dispose of them safely. And that's probably, if you are going to dispose of them, you should probably should do it that way rather than just throwing them in the aquifer. But indeed, you may not have to throw them away at all, at least for survival purposes. Yeah, even the FDA offers instructions on trashing your medicine, so you can go to the FDA and they'll tell you all about that. And this is all as if the Shelf Life Extension Program never existed. So I think that it's clear to me, as a matter of fact, that some people in the FDA don't even know about the program at all because I still get people giving me blank looks at the same time that I get people who actually worked at the FDA telling me that, yeah, we did that study and that indeed is correct. And, of course, we get that from uh, a number of our readers and listeners that uh, work in the pharmaceutical industry. So what happens when the government runs out of medicines and it finds that it needs medicines. For example, a flu epidemic where they don't have enough antiviral medicine like Tamiflu or a situation where a medicine is not being produced by private companies as fast as it's needed, such as doxycycline a while ago. Well, then they use 
a what they call an emergency use authorization for expired drugs. And they quietly issue these. And there have been a number of them issued during the uh, year over over the years. Uh, the swine flu epidemic, for example, in 2009, there was a major shortage of a drug called Tamiflu, which is an excellent anti-influenza drug. And so what they did is they issued a five-year emergency use authorization, EUA is what it's called. And it said, basically, that the government authorizes the use of the medication for five years after the date on the label. And so they can make that a five-year, or they can make it a two-year, they can make it a 10-year. They did a 10-year emergency use authorization for doxycycline uh, a couple of years after the Tamiflu authorization. And a number of other drugs have been extended over the years for whatever reasons the government decides are appropriate. The question to me is, why does all this data exist? And nobody tells the average per uh, citizen that these medicines are still most likely 100% potent and safe to use. Well, there's a lot to lose for drug companies. Imagine a politician running on a platform saving consumers money by not throwing out inspired drugs. You would imagine that, that somebody running for senator or, or, or congressman says, hey, don't throw out drugs that are expired. Guess what their opponent would say? My opponent is trying to make you take stale drugs. He's a lunatic. Well, you have to realize that the public has been conditioned to think that drugs become dangerous when they expire. And it's not the case uh, in the grand majority of cases. Now, there was a classic example given for a dangerous expired drug. That was tetracycline. In 1963, the Journal of the American Medical Association linked a case of kidney damage to the antibiotic. But that case involved a form of the drug that's no longer in use today. Now, there are some instances of complications reported just as there are with tetracycline, just as there are with any other antibiotic. And indeed, you will find the Wikipedia entry for tetracycline still calling it dangerous when expired. But there actually haven't been a lot of cases reported of expired tetracycline toxicity it, using the new for using the later formulation, but in any case, tetracycline is one we call a first generation drug, one of the first drug, uh, antibiotics, as a matter of fact, ever developed. And there's so much resistance to resistance to it that I would recommend not storing tetracycline. I'd rather you have doxycycline, a member of the same antibiotic family, and one that we know because it had an emergency use authorization for for expired drugs in 2010, and we know that that is a safe drug to use when you're expired because the government says you could use it, let's face it. So all of the scary press over the years, you probably have about 70% of people that would never take a prescription uh, or over-the-counter over, or over drug after the expiration date. As a matter of fact, the military throws out IV bags of normal saline because of the response when a serviceman sees that it's beyond the date. That might have changed changed since I wrote the original article. That was about five years ago. I don't know if that's changed since then, but boy, uh, that is something that the military, if they see something's expired in terms of IV solutions, remember it's a fluid, it is indeed 
thrown out. And the funny thing about normal saline is it's basically sodium and chloride, two non-organic compounds that shouldn't really shouldn't really degrade. What does it degrade to? It it it's not like it becomes something else. Like let's say uh, if you had sugar in it, for example, dextrose or, or glucose. Well, that is an organic compound, and indeed it could degrade. But normal saline, it seems to me that it would last much longer than the expiration date. And the funny thing about um, expiration dates is that even if you could could send it to a charity that sends, let's say, medical supplies to Haiti or other undeveloped, underdeveloped countries, and they'll still often re- refuse these drugs, which is funny because there are probably people dying because they can't get a hold of them, and because they're expired, they won't go ahead and do that. For that that's the public's opinion. That's the opinion of these organizations, these charities, but from a survival standpoint, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. Let's take a scenario. Okay, medic, it's been a while since the collapse happened. The medicines that you have left in your storage, they've all expired. Uh, They're not making them anymore. Things haven't stabilized to the point where they're doing that. So no fresh supplies are coming. There aren't any rescue helicopters, no ambulances heading in your direction. And one day you have to decide whether or not to use an expired medicine. I personally... Oh, are you here? Yes. I didn't even know I had to go get some hot tea with honey. Okay. And a spoonful of honey. Uh, Oh. Yeah, you know, ear infections. What are you going to do? So um, we've taken expired medications. In fact, I just started one... Last night. <laughs> I deny it. No, actually, I don't deny it. Doxycycline. I don't think it's a big issue. Which is what everyone's fearful. Oh, uh, doxycycline. No, tetracycline. Tetracycline is the one they really worry. Well, it's, it's in the same family. It's sister. But, <laughs> but the government, as I mentioned a little while ago, um, actually did have an emergency use, use authorization for expired doxycycline. Yes. So well, that's sort one, of interesting. This one expired in 2014. So it's probably about two and a half years. But it's working so far. So the question is, what kind of and plan? Wait, I haven't grown a horn between my eyes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're used to my. You know, you know what I say. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. So anyhow, you have to decide in one in one situation or another. If a disaster lasts long enough, you might have to decide whether or not to use an expired medication. So what's what's your plan? First off, you want to try to extend the shelf life of medicine with good storage practices. And these are very simple. Conditions should be dry. Mm-hmm. Medications are commonly stored, believe it or not, in the worst place possible, the bathroom. Bathrooms are the most humid areas of the house. Drugs should always be kept in dry conditions. Uh, many medicines have little packages called desiccants in the bottle, things that dry things out. And these are, some people actually remove these. Don't remove them. They're there to absorb moisture and keep your medicine Potent. You know, it's really funny to me how somehow through the ages we have associated taking medicine with a place that you go to the bathroom. <laughs> putting, yeah. Putting medicine What's with cap, that? I, it makes no sense whatsoever. And kids can access that very easily. So you need to find a different place for your medicine, especially if you have kids. If you don't have kids or grandchildren crawling around counters and and snooping into places they shouldn't be, I personally think a great place to store it is where you keep your cups, 
where you keep your glasses. That makes sense. You open the cabinet, you get a glass, you get your medicine, you fill up the glass with water, and you take your medicines. I think maybe putting the medicine in the shelf just above where you have the or glasses right might above even be it, better. Right above so it. So I that's think that's fine. a good idea. But it's certainly going to give you a darker location. Um, make sure that that cabinet is not near your stove so that you don't have heat that comes off of that appliance. But everyone has a place in the kitchen where it doesn't get hot and certainly not steamy. It's not very often that your your kitchen is full of steam. Maybe in the back of the pantry, the top shelf in the pantry might also be yes, good. Yes, where the keep um, your food. Uh, in a closet, perhaps. That right. would be a dark place and usually but just dry. Think, think of an alternative place to your bathroom and just it's so funny how we have associated bathrooms with medicines right you know and it's it's fine to keep your band-aids there and even your triple antibiotic ointment you know it's that only has a couple years before it goes bad anyway at least per expiration and um but your pills your tablets your your Sudafed your daily medications Keep those in your kitchen or by your bed in a a drawer. And again, if you've got children, someplace secure, someplace that can be locked Some pa- up. Someplace high or someplace has a lock. Exactly, I, that's exactly important. it. And those, and, and if you have someplace like that, usually that is a dark place. That's another, that besides being right. dry, you want it, the environment to be dark. Light has a tendency to speed the loss of potency in a, in a drug. This is why medicines are stored in brown or amber bottles. And just to be clear, I'm talking about daily use medicines, things that we have today, things that you may take on a daily basis. Uh, what you are talking about, Dr. Bones, is long-term storage. So I just want to clarify that for people, that I'm not asking you to put your long-term medication storage in your kitchen. (laughs) I'm just recommending it as a daily storage, something you might use on a more regular basis um, in a location not in your bathroom. So that's important. I think that's a good point. I think it's important, remember, to... By the way, I think people should really make sure they keep their medicines in the original container. I mean, yes. it's got the information on good, how to use it, maybe point. the dosage, he identifies it, so that there's no confusion there. I think that that is, is a good idea. A lot of people get into the habit of, you know, these long-term storage. They're going to put all these pills in different containers. Well, even if you write on them, the writing could come off if it gets wet or, or there is moisture on the outside of the package. So you need to be really careful to keep those medicines in the original bottles. It has a lot of vital information, where it was manufactured, what the actual expiration date was stamped on the bottle, uh, which gives you a clue as to how many more years you probably can use it, what the dosage is, the exact name of the medicine. So it does have some vital information. I I think that's an excellent point. Besides dark and dry, you want things to be cool if possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't have to freeze medicines. You don't have to freeze dry medicines. But it would be better for medicines to be stored in an area that's a little cooler than room temperature 50 degrees would be awesome. 40 degrees in a, fr- a fridge would be ac- would be acceptable if the fridge is dry. Right. Um, it's thought that a medicine that's stored at 50 degrees retains its potency twice as long 
than if it were star the same medicine were stored at ninety degrees. So that's something to consider. Right. Well, and again, most medications have a range, and that might actually be on the bottle. They have not only an upper range of temperature, but they have a lower range. And that's a good reason to talk to a- not put them in the freezer. Right. 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 And to not and to keep them in the original container, so you have as much information. That's right. As possible. So about I just it. want to be clear that. You know, just because we say they last longer at 40 degrees than 50 doesn't mean you're going to get, you're going to keep multiplying that as you go into 30 degrees and 20 degrees and 10 degrees and and zero degrees. And it's bad, especially for liquid medicines, because once it changes from one state to another, liquid to solid, uh, then you may have a significant degrading of its actual medicinal benefit. Everybody is a little different. Right. now, here's another way that you might be able to extend longevity of medicines even once you've run out of them, and that is to grow your own. Aha! You know, and if a disaster, idea. right, if a disastrous situation lasts long enough, you're going to run out of these pharmaceuticals, but there are other options, and those might be the plants in your own backyard. I mean, many plants have medicinal benefits that make them invaluable in off-grid settings. Uh, the underbark of willow trees, for example, contains salicin, an ingredient used in the first aspirins. Natural herbs, other re- remedies can act also as drug extenders. In other words, they may work for minor ailments and decrease the rate at which you expend the precious pharmaceuticals that you might have. And they'll at least give you a shot at reaching expiration dates with some medicines still in your storage. So the effective medic knows what herbs are going to treat illnesses and injuries, just like they know what medicines will treat symptoms of a particular uh, illness. I mean, your ancestors used all these herbs and all these medicinal plants for so many different medical problems in the past. Somewhere along the line, unfortunately, we lost that knowledge, but it can be found again if you look. We have a lot of old, some of the older books, uh, our books, that we have a collection from the 19th century of medicine books. And you might be surprised to know that conventional medicine back there is what we call herbal medicine today. <laughs> right. And, and, That's and a, what and it was. That's all a, they had. Right. And a conventional doctor back then was essentially an herbalist. It is so now, funny. I mean, some, some herbalists so might beg to differ, but they, I've got all these formulas and they're all a bunch of herbs. That's it. Mixing them up. And right. How, how much to put in and what is it going to cure, how often to give it. And that's their PDR. Absolutely. Is herbs. <laughs> the whole thing. Now, all of this doesn't prepare you for the well, decision that you might have to make one day as a family medic in a disaster. Let me just say one other thing. It's not just herbs. There are some chemicals. Oh, yeah. There liquids are, and stuff. Oh, yeah. There are <laughs> it's lots. It's not just herbs. No, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> now, let's talk about this situation. Let's. Let's say that you're the family medic and some issue has occurred, some disaster, some catastrophe has occurred, and basically you're, it's been a while, your medicines are expired, and you have to choose to decide, you have to decide whether or not you're going to use a, an old drug, a drug that's been expired for a while. Now, in a disaster, the decision-making process might come down to asking yourself some very basic questions. First off, you're not going to have well, one question, I think. Is there mm-hmm. is there a doctor in the house or is there a Good. functioning hospital? That's it. Good question. Functioning hospital or or other medical facility, the likelihood is the answer is going to be no. 
So you need to then ask yourself, what's the problem? You need to take over as medic and you say, okay, so what is the problem? The second is, do I have medicine that's going to treat it? Then this is why it's so important, and as we mentioned early in the show, to learn how to deal with injuries and illness in situations where emergency personnel, where doctors and nurses may not be at hand uh, after, after a disaster. So what's the problem? Do you have medicine that will treat it? If you've been off the grid long enough, the third question might be, could this medicine, even though it has expired, possibly save a life? Let's be even more specific and tell me what you think. A loved one's fading from an infection. Something bad has happened. You're off the grid, been off the grid for a while, and you have no hope of getting any modern medical care. You've got an expired bottle of, let's say, antibiotics. What are you going to do? Someone you love is dying from an infection. Are That might be treated by that particular expired antibiotic. Are you going to use the expired drug or not? Exactly. When it comes down to the nitty-gritty, you got to do what you can with what you have. And in this situation, you really can't withhold a drug that might save a life because some academician perhaps said, or some FDA site said, that it wasn't really a good idea to use it. I mean, you have to realize that these guys are not seriously considering a time when an expired medicine might be the only option that you have left to save a life. So this is, I think, something that we have to realize. This is a hard reality that whatever medicines that we have at the time that a catastrophe occurs is most likely what you're going to have to deal with for the duration of the catastrophe. If it is a years-long thing, then you will wish that you have had maybe not thrown away some of those medicines that passed the expiration date. Now... As I said early in the show, too, in normal times, seek modern standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. If you run out of a medicine or if your medicine expires and you have a doctor who will write your prescription for a fresh batch, well, you know what? Go ahead and get some fresh medicine. That, that's, there's no reason why you shouldn't in that situation. But consider keeping some of that expired medicine in your medical storage for true disasters, I think it might make a little sense. Hey, we're really running out of time. I wanted to ask people this question. Have you ever felt the joy and satisfaction <laughs> you get from helping the elderly? <laughs> well, I'm elderly. How about helping me? I help you every day. And help your family. <laughs> By getting a copy of our brand new third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook with my co-author, the lovely nurse Amy, Amy Alden, ARMP. And our Survival Medicine Handbook is now in its third edition. It's called The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. It is 700 pages, and I mean 700 pages of over 150 medical topics that you might have to confront in a disaster or an epidemic or Zombie apocalypse, who knows? <laughs> you can find our book at Amazon.com or you can find it on our, it on our website at doomandbloom.net. 
please put us in your survival library. You will be glad you did, I guarantee. <laughs> now, I still find the pe- that people, by the way, are buying the second edition, and even sometimes the first edition of the book, which, which was called the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Handbook. If you're doing it as a collector's edition, great, but <laughs> otherwise give those old copies to someone you love. Get the or latest. Or the library. Or the library, local library. Get the latest copy. It's got the most information 700 pages, a lot more illustrations, too. I think it's the greatest, but then I would, wouldn't I? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure how much bigger we can make it before we have to give them a tow truck. I know. Or a hand cart. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a weighty tome, I will say that. It's a hefty, hefty. But it's got as much information as we possibly have. I'm trying to think of as many things that... I know. Right, exactly. That's wild. But anyhow, we are pretty much out of time at the moment. I want to thank everybody for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with the lovely nurse Amy and yes, some old guy. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget to check out our classes pages. Right. Please, so you guys can see where we are. You'll find that at doomandbloom.net. By the way, we want to thank uh, the guys at survivaltop50.com with they have us listed as number 1 as the readers choice in on their website of all survival sites and also number 1 as the top medical supplier in terms of ratings so we are very happy to have Yay. The, uh, <laughs> good ratings we're also happy that all the nice people who have bought our book on Amazon our first second and third edition have something like a 90% um, or five star, eighty-five percent, ninety percent, five star, five star rating on We're all of very, our books. We've put all our books together. Been very nice, and so we really appreciate it. Thank you so very much, and we wish you a very good week. We'll be back next time. See you soon. Bye bye. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. In these days of terrorists, active shooters, and worse, every school, workplace, and homestead should have the equipment necessary to save a life. The first aid bleeding control module is meant to provide the items you need to stop hemorrhage. It's compact, lightweight, and has easy-to-read waterproof instructions. If every teacher's desk, worker station, and car or truck had one, have no doubt, it would save lives. Available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net.